Let's pray. God, this morning, as we continue in this great, great letter from Paul to the region of Galatia, may the truth that Paul is trying to get that sometimes he writes in in language and in, in ways that are hard to understand, may it become clear for us. May the truth that we seek, the truth that you want to give us, be yours. Not mine, not ours, but yours alone. In Jesus' name, Amen. So, last week uh, we were following Paul's journey. Paul's journey where he was proving his bona fides to the Galatians. Remember, let's let's put it back in perspective. There are agitators that have come from the from the outside, come from Jerusalem, that are trying to lead his church astray. And Paul, in chapter one, was setting up his bona fides. He had received his gospel from Christ Himself, not from any humans. And this is a gospel of freedom. Remember, this is one of the words I want us to to look for throughout the book of Galatians: freedom. And here in the beginning of chapter 2, we see ways in which Paul is defining freedom. Paul's freedom is not the same as our idea of Western freedom. This idea that we can do whatever we want. In fact, I think I saw a commercial the other day that freedom is, is doing what you want when you want. That is not Paul's idea of freedom. And it starts, you start seeing it here early in chapter 2. Because Paul takes Titus back to Jerusalem to talk to the pillars. And and there's one little sentence so so that we wouldn't have run our race in vain. There's something in Paul, though he talks about that the pillars aren't so special. The pillars aren't God themselves. Uh, But there's something in Paul that wants to make sure that his message and his gospel is in line with the larger church. That it could work together. Paul's freedom here means allowing some level of collaboration. Paul's freedom means that he's willing to go back and talk to Jerusalem. Talk to Cephas. That's another name for Peter that Paul uses all the time. It also means rock. And so both words mean rock. We don't exactly know why why Paul chose the name Cephas instead of Peter. But he wanted to go back to Peter, to James, to the leadership in Jerusalem and make sure that his, his approach was right. But also his freedom shows that nobody speaks for God. Not even Cephas. When Cephas, when Peter comes to Antioch, Paul isn't wowed by this leader that walked beside Jesus. Paul meets him face to face and confronts him with his sinfulness. Peter has walked back the gospel some. Whenever the Jews started to... to say that the Gentiles needed to eat the right way or they needed to be circumcised. As they started doing these things, Peter was backing up. Was it out of fear? Was it theological? Was Peter confused? We don't actually know. The way that Paul addresses it, it seems like it's fear. It seems like it is. Peter is just giving in to the pressures outside. You know better, Peter. So Paul's... Freedom here is twofold. We see 
part of him that wants to join in a community, wants to make sure the discernment of the gospel is done in the whole church. But he also has the freedom to know when they're getting it wrong and and confront the very rock on which Jesus would build the church. Confront that very rock and say, you are wrong, Peter. And so... I like how the NIV does this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trash the NIV a little as we go. Um, but I, I like how the NIV does this because in the original language, we don't have quotation marks. We don't know sometimes when someone is, is speaking in a story like Paul is giving here and when he actually turns and talks to his, his congregations that he's writing to. We have to make that decision. And I believe the NIV made the decision right. So in my Bible, the quotations start in verse 14. Paul is talking to Peter. And the quotations do not end until the end of the chapter. This whole time, we must remember that Paul is recounting his conversation with Peter. He's giving a message to the Galatians, but these are all things that he said to Peter when he confronted him. And I I really believe that that remembering that that is the case, if that interpretation, if that translation is right, if that is the case, that some of the ways that he words some of these things are much stronger, much more in our face, because he was in Peter's face. So first, uh, as he addresses Peter, he says that, that, that we who are Jews by birth are not and are not sinful Gentiles. Know that a person is not justified by works of the law. See, he's confronting Peter. And he says, Peter, you as a Jew should know better. You as a Jew should know that, that the harder we try to live by the law, the further we tend to get from it. In fact, you've seen it, Peter. Those who believe they are living the most by the law end up to be the most corrupt, the most evil, the most violent. No matter how hard we try to focus in on rules to make us do right, we have a tendency to try to do wrong. Peter, you know your history. You know that the Jews, after given the law, were never able to keep it. Always chose our own evil. And that came to hurt us. That split the kingdom. That sent us into exile. That has continued to keep us weak. Because we can't keep the law of God. You have seen both in the history of our Jewish people. And with your very own eyes when you followed our Savior. You have seen just how evil and violent human nature is. If you look around you, you will know that we are all sinful and we are all unable to keep this law. It was the very law followers, the Pharisees, that were instrumental in getting your Savior crucified. And if you look at yourself, Peter, you know that you were taught by Jesus. You walk beside him and even you whenever the the uh, chips were down even you chose to deny him. Even you as much as you wanted to do good did evil. And still still 
your Messiah, your rabbi, chose you to be the leader of our church, chose you to pour out his spirit into. Peter, remember that we as Jews know that we cannot find righteousness and holiness through the law. We know it better than the Gentiles because we've tried and we know we've failed. Ecclesia, the message can ring true for us this morning. If we look at the world around us, if we look at the way people have treated us in our history, we see sin. If we look at the way that we have treated others, we see sin. I honestly believe that most people are good. Or they want to be good. Most of us don't wake up in the morning wanting to hurt others. But if we are honest about ourselves, about those who have hurt us, and about the world around us, for some reason, we can't help it. We want to do good. But the evil in human nature runs so deep that we will never make it on our own. We cannot, we cannot, through any actions of our own, attain the righteousness and holiness of God. So I told you I was going to, to rag on the NIV. It's not really, I love the NIV as a translation, but we always have to make choices when we translate. Just like where to put those quote quotation marks, we have to make other choices. And sometimes when you go from one language to another, things get lost in translation. Have you ever just typed something into Google Translate and see how it comes out? Things just get lost. And I found some situations where very humorously... From, uh, from translating from other languages into English, things get a little bit lost. So first, sometimes spelling is just a little bit different. Thank you for not smoking. Sometimes, and those, those in the room that speak Spanish understand this, we in English don't have double, double negatives, right? But in other languages, they do. And when you translate it, it is just, it comes across weird. In English. Actually, English is one of the few languages, I believe, that has such a problem with double negatives. Um, in fact, in the Greek, the, the, the language that I'll be talking about here in a second, there are times that they'll use that, that they'll use a double negative, and that basically means, oh heck no. Like it's not just no, this is this is emphatic. No, no, no. And so double negatives don't translate into our language very well. Um, sometimes I think other languages can express things better than ours. Like uh, this sign here. You ever come across a floor wet sign and it's no longer wet? This one doesn't say that the floor is wet. There's a good probability it's wet. There's a chance. You better look down. Um, sometimes these translations are actually come across better. Um, and then sometimes they are just hilarious. And sometimes... The language, the distance between languages are so far that if we translate it directly, it is almost unreadable. I stared at that all morning. I still don't know what it's saying. I don't have a clue. 
And my point is that, that there's, uh, there's something happening here in Galatians with Paul writing to, to his church here that, that creates a bit of a translation conundrum. Um, and so if we will look at verse 15, we'll be looking at verse 15, we'll also be looking at verse 20 eventually. And I want you to look at where most of us are reading out of the NIV, correct? Uh, Ted, I think you're out of the KJV. Can you read verse 15 for me out of the King James? Uh, where is it then the blessing that you speak of? For I bear you record that it had, it, if it had been possible, ye would have plucked out your own eyes and had given it them to me. What book are you in? Uh, Galatians. Chapter 2, verse 15. I know. I We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, Oh, 16. Sorry, keep going. 16 is actually where we're at. Keep going, though. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Ooh, that's good enough. How is that different from what you find in the NIV? The last three words. NIV says in, not of. Faith in Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. NIV isn't necessarily wrong in this. I'm going to prove that I believe it's a bad translation. The NIV did it that, that, that uh, approached the wrong way. But here's our problem. Uh, Greek is actually a fairly specific type of language. There's very little ambiguity built into what Paul is writing in, except for this very commonly used part of the language called the genitive. Uh, normally, we translate it of. But that's not the only way it can be translated. In is a possibility. Let me give an example of ways the genitive can be confusing. Uh, let's think of the idea of the Mall of America. Where is it located? Minneapolis? Minneapolis. Minneapolis. Mall of America. Located in Minneapolis, what do you think of America means? Nation. Yeah, kind of this. This is the, this is the coolest, coolest mall in America. This is the American Mall. This is the epitome of it. But let's put it in India. And you see the term Mall of America. And they would almost wonder that it's a possessive. Is this, is this America's mall where we are? Does that make sense? Or, uh, so, so often we, we translate that of as possessive. That I have it. Um, this is, that's the, we don't speak this way, but that is the car of Michael. Michael's car. Uh, but sometimes it is, it's a, another way of dealing with it. To where it is, um, the if we translate it, faith of Jesus Christ, that the King James Version keeps the ambiguity. Faith of Jesus Christ. Is that our faith about Jesus Christ? Or is that Christ's faith? Is it possessive? Or are we pointing to, towards it? And here's something I want to realize. That, 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 that ambiguity is there in the text. We have to make a choice. Any translator has to do it. Anybody deciding to take the language from Greek to English has to make this choice. And you do it based on context around it. And the reason why... There are two reasons why I believe the NIV approached this wrong. When it says faith in Jesus Christ, that makes it our faith about Jesus Christ that saves us here. Uh, but there are two reasons why I want to show that that is wrong. The first is it's a little bit redundant. We've got a little bit of circular reasoning here. Because if we go on go on down to it, let's uh, 
but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. He's making the same point over and over and over. Paul doesn't tend to waste words. So this faith in Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ is actually redundant. It sounds like he's, he's making a circular argument that we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ because we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. That's why we have faith in Jesus Christ. But if we translate the of a different way, and my favorite translation is the New English translation, um, it's a, um, and I like how they translate it here, uh, starting in verse 16. Yet we know that no one is justified by the works of the law, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Jesus Christ, though we may be justified by that faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Now, when Paul says faithfulness of Jesus Christ, what's he talking about? Where is he? Y'all keep moving my cross around. Right there. Yeah. No, but the, well, Jesus' faithfulness was taking the plan of his father and following it all the way up to the hill to Golgotha. That is where salvation happened. Another reason why I can uh, uh, that I believe that we should translate this as faithfulness of Jesus Christ is inside verse 16, when Paul talks about believing in him, Paul uses a different approach. This means to believe, he uses, he doesn't use the genitive there, he uses the preposition into, to, to, to have our faith into the action that's already been done by Christ. So when Paul wants to talk about our direct faith, our response, he, not always, but here, uses into to separate. And then the third reason I actually believe that uh, this should be translated faithfulness of Jesus Christ is because this is what the whole argument revolves around here in chapter 2. That there is nothing we can do to get righteousness. There's no law we can follow, even a law that says we must believe. There's nothing we can do it. It was done by Christ and it is given to us through grace. Our faith doesn't give it to us. It's already been given by the faithfulness of. We just believe in it. Does that make sense? That is the entire argument Paul is making. And so since Luther... Uh, Martin Luther, and and for so long we have translated this that we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. We're justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And though though that isn't necessarily untrue, that takes the salvation off of the work on the cross and puts it in our belief. Does that make sense? Are you following this logical argument? I'm sorry this is kind of more like a lecture for a little while, but I want to make sure that we understand the logic and the language involved. The justification, salvation, only comes through the work in Christ. Period. Therefore, nothing about doing good otherwise, even our own faith, is from us. It is given from above. It is given by God. That's why Paul is able to talk about the fact that that he he has died to the law and now can live in Christ. The law cannot bring about righteousness. The law cannot bring about goodness. All it does is remind us when we sin. But if we die to the law, if Christ pours into us through the work He did on the cross, through His faithfulness, now we are able to live in Christ. Now we're truly able to be righteous. 
It's not our doing. It has nothing to do with the, the Ten Commandments. It has nothing to do with being able to do these, even, those, even though those commandments are good laws. The only way we can live righteously is the gift, freely given, called grace. Only the faithfulness of Christ. Sin now to Paul is no longer defined by outside influence, including the law of the Old Testament. He no longer decides what is sin or not based on a list of rules or what someone tells him. He now decides by the spirit living within him, reminding him of the gospel of the faithfulness of Christ. Does it match the gospel? It's not sin. Is it against the gospel? It has to be sin. And now he's able to, as he says, live in the grace of God. Live with Christ in him. And then this is another part where I believe it's, it's important that we remember he's talking to Peter the whole time here. Because this last sentence, verse 21, though it's stark to us, think about hearing it said to Peter. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Peter, your Messiah, Peter, your rabbi, if you decide to take on parts of this law, then he was no Messiah, then he was no Savior. All he's done is just kind of reinforce what was there before. Nothing changed. If you decide to take in the law, then your friend was crucified for nothing. But if you're allowed to allow grace to be as radical as it can be, then he's a Messiah. Then he's a Savior. Everything now has changed. Paul's central idea, really to his whole gospel, is this idea of grace. Grace. And we are in danger always that if we remove the idea of radical grace poured out in ways that we can never deserve it. We are always in danger of removing that. Of creating our own sets of rules, our own ways to get to God that doesn't preach grace. If we take the grace of our Savior and hide it behind our own biases and fears. If we take the world rocking power of the blood and water poured out and hide it in our own hand-woven curtains of our own rule set, then our religion, our faith, is useless. As long as we are teaching people that yes, God loves you if, then we aren't being church. And we're always in danger of doing this. We are always in danger of confusing culture with faith. We were talking about this morning about uh, outside missionaries coming in. And Michael was sharing about his, uh, the island he lived on, or that that, uh, his family comes from, uh, is very, very skeptical of Christianity. Because they see Christianity not as a a faith of grace, 
but, but a, a way of bringing Western culture and hurting their culture. A way of invading who they are. And we've done this with our faith in history. And we can point fingers and say, oh, it's their fault. It's their fault. Uh, but we are always in danger of doing this. What are the rules we put in place that's for someone to be able to come to Christ? To come into our doors? What are they? And how often do we confuse cultural and society, societal ideals with kingdom ideals? How do we decide? Remember last week I talked about that at some point Paul, Paul in Galatians is drawing the line in the sand. There is a difference between, between a righteous church and an unrighteous church. But what is that line? And Ed stood with me after worship and talked for quite a while about how do we discern the line. How do we as a church decide what can we not cross over before we become evil? Every church has to decide for themselves and many have chosen the wrong lines. Paul here says that the line has to do with grace. If you set aside the grace of God, then Christ died for nothing. If you add something to the grace of God, if you say there's some other way to get to Jesus, there's some other way to get to God other than just believing in the work He did, then Christ died for nothing. As we meet people who are not like us, as we meet people maybe the culture says are too different, what decisions do we make? What decisions do we make about whether we cover up or show grace? Are we teaching people that their sins have been covered? That everything they have done, yes, even, as we were talking about this morning, even predators, sexual predators who we tend to demonize and make evil and put them to the side. Are we willing to tell them that yes, even your sin is covered. Yes, even the grace is that radical and you can be loved here. Are we willing to make those types of choices? Are we willing to decide a way that we can be a beacon of grace and love to our LGBTQ brothers and sisters? Can we find a way to do it? Are we too scared of it? And therefore, we build a curtain. We, we, we veil it a little out of fear. Out of the unknown. Out of not knowing how to handle it. Or are we willing to be that light shining? When we're making these decisions, where do we decide to draw the line? Do we let outside forces? Rules. Societal norms, culture, do we let them decide where our line is drawn or do we draw the line where Paul draws it? I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be attained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Let us pray. God, this... This idea of this radical grace is, is foreign to us. Many of us have problems even applying it to ourselves. Even saying that you could love all of our darkness. And 
Sometimes, sometimes we have a problem applying it to others. We like our rules, we like our laws, we like our our curtains to be up to keep us safe because grace at its fullest scares us. Scares us that those we hate should not be hated. Scares us that 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 we hate within ourselves should not be hated. That your love is all-encompassing. That your faithfulness, even when taking on our sin, our violence, even our death, your faithfulness is what did it all. Are we willing? Are we able to accept that fully? Please, God, invade our sinful hearts. Please let us be a church of grace. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. My invitation this morning is that, that with how radical this idea of grace is, there will be some in the room, and I am part of it, who the, the idea of radical grace that could forgive everything within us, we still can't fully get. But here's the call this morning, Ecclesia. That grace is here for you. Nothing you can do brings it to you. It has already been given. Will you accept it? Let us worship together.